Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to That Anthro Podcast. I'm sorry I've been quiet for a little while, but I'm happy to be back and posting episodes. Um, I made an announcement on Instagram that uh, as much as I'm going to try to have episodes out every two weeks, um, I will no longer be following a set schedule and I will be posting episodes when I have them. So episodes will still come out on Wednesdays, but I just need a little bit more flexibility and having a set schedule is kind of stressful for me. Um, But that doesn't mean that there aren't episodes coming, just check social media for when they're going to be posted or turn your notifications on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, like wherever you listen to the podcasts so that you can get a notification when there is a new episode if you aren't following the podcast on social media or you don't do social media, etc. So excited because today I have my mentor, my advisor at George Mason, uh, Dr. Daniel Temple on. It's so weird saying Dr. Daniel Temple because he has me call him Dan or Temple. So um, Temple is really such a thoughtful, thoughtful academic and thoughtful researcher and especially in the way he communicates it. And you would never know, um, except that he says it at the end of the episode, that this is really his first like public facing um, interview, uh, regarding his anthropological work. Now, as you all know, we don't just focus on someone's current work. We talk about his academic journey, um, starting at community college all the way through to where he is now at George Mason. We talk about getting his PhD with Dr. Clark Spencer Larson, where he met Dr. Hagen Klaus, who is a co-professor at, uh, George Mason with him and just how, you know, he really found his niche in anthropology, which is um, hunter-gatherers and bioarchaeological um, view of uh, resilience and early life stress. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. I'm super thankful for Dr. Temple for coming on the podcast. And I think probably the thing that impressed me the most about him is Uh, how much he credits everyone he's ever worked with, been inspired by, or kind of like worked alongside with. So yeah, enjoy and I'll see you soon. All right, everyone, welcome back to That Anthro Podcast. Um, Today I'm speaking with my mentor, Dr. Temple. He is a professor at George Mason University and um, he's the reason I'm here. (laughs) He decided he wanted me here. And we were just talking about Zoom and boundaries with Zoom, but I'm curious how you think for like, as a podcaster, like, I feel like it's good for me because I can reach out to someone like Matt Velasco, who's going to come on the podcast. I can't drive to Cornell, you know what I mean? And uh, so like, do you think in that case, it's, it's crossing boundaries? No, Okay. I don't. I think that um, just like phones and social media and, um, other forms of mass communication that it is basically a tool and that when used appropriately that um, it can be helpful 
Um, I think that we have examples of social media, for example, spurring mass social movements and actually advocating for sociopolitical change. But I also think that there is a strong amount of research that shows that there is a damaging component to it that breaks down barriers of um, people's work lives, people's school lives, um, and people's home lives. Yeah. And I think when we talk about it as a tool of agency, which you would be using it as to mm -hmm. interview Matt, I think that is a valuable and important contribution. But I think when you talk about it in terms of our deans and deanlets mm. asking me for additional time on days that I have blocked off or time that I have blocked off, it becomes really difficult for faculty and other employees to um, wield the valuable power of no. Yeah, yeah. I think specifically like within academia that becomes like a consistent problem that I've seen with like a lot of people is the work-life balance and like like you said like setting the boundaries and I think you're really good at that um for the most part no you don't think so Brandy would disagree Miss, oh, okay. Miss Temple would disagree okay <laughs> I um I do try really hard yes yes and and that's and that's that's all you can do really um so now I want to kind of go back in time. I want to start with community college because you told me the other day that that's where you started your educational journey. Um, kind of what was the plan there uh, and how did you make it from community college to then transferring? Absolutely. Um, so to begin with, I was in community college because I was a terrible high school student. I at the time believed that education was a institutionalized process that harmed free thinking, uh, specifically formal education. And because of that, I pretty much ignored all of my teachers um, and spent all of my time skateboarding, listening to music, going to shows, um, basically the opposite of what a lot of my colleagues who discovered archaeology when they were seven in their backyards did. Um, and I went to community college. Um, I have a lot of, I have the good fortune to be from a supportive family, particularly my mom, um, and was able to attend a community college, but I was um, required to go to the community college and work 40 hours a week so that I could understand what I'd be missing out, what I'd have to deal with if I didn't pursue an education. Um, and that kind of instilled in me a greater sense of value for the process of formalized education. And as I, um, as I attended community college, you know, semester by semester, I realized that there was all this amazing knowledge out there that actually could be used to break down barriers and engage in the kinds of conversations and social change that I thought was really important when I was in high school. Um, my first anthropology class at a community college was taught by Professor Eric Yost, who's at Hillsborough Community College in Tampa, Florida. And, and is that the community college you went to? Yeah, okay. that's the community college I went to. Um, and what I remembered about this class is seeing this really uh, compelling and magnanimous person talk about things that I found important, things that where I found value. 
And it was diverse. It was everything from human evolution to racism in society to understanding the ecology of small scale societies in South America. Um, and I noticed how he spent his time. He was engaged in debating other faculty in our hallways. He got to wear his jeans and t-shirt to work, showed up at 10 a.m., left at three. And the, um, and, you know, I say this knowing that our time doesn't end when we leave, but what I, what I loved about that was he had the freedom to set his own schedule and ask the questions he wanted to ask while engaging in conversations where I found value. So I thought I'm going to do this for a living. <laughs> and found a lot of um, myself in bioarchaeology as I started to look at universities where I wanted to, to study. So I didn't know that you lived in Tampa, Florida. I'm <laughs> trying did. to imagine you in Tampa, Florida. I can't. <laughs> I, I grew up in a very small beach community in Florida called Satellite Beach, just south of the Kennedy Space Center. Okay. Um, and my best friend from high school was admitted to the University of South Florida in Tampa. Tampa had a great punk and hardcore scene, which was my priority yeah. at the time. So I thought, oh, I get to go move with Brooks and I'll get to take part in this really uh, vibrant community, yeah. uh, subcultural community. So that's, that's how I ended up in Tampa. Yeah, that's actually, Meg describes you as a retired punk rocker. <laughs> Meg Hardy, who was on the podcast listeners, uh, is also, was also a student of Dr. Temple, um, has now graduated and is awesome and working at the Smithsonian. If you haven't checked out her episode, you should definitely check it out. Um, so then where did you transfer to? Well, after um, my time at Hillsborough Community College, I had originally just intended to seek my education at the University of South Florida. They have a great anthropology program. Um, at the time, I believe it was Lorena Madrigal and Curtis Wanker who were there and kind of the most compelling folks for me. Um, but I was also really influenced by paleoanthropology. And I had read um, Lucy, The Beginnings of Humankind yeah. um, while I was taking my anthropology class with Professor Yost. And, um, saw that Arizona State had this amazing and dynamic anthropology program. So I filled out a transfer request to Arizona State. And um, here's where high school education bit me. I was actually denied admission because I hadn't taken enough foreign language classes and math at a high enough level. So I had to actually that summer complete uh, a class in, I guess it's Algebra 2 now, yeah. um, and a series of courses in a foreign language uh before I could before I could matriculate got it yeah I remember when I did my like orientation at UCSB you spend the night in the dorms and then they like show you around campus and they help pick your classes and I sat down with the counselor and she goes okay so what classes do you want to take and I go okay well are there any requirements and she goes no I mean down the road you'll have some gen ed requirements but for your first semester quarter uh just take what you want to take and so I picked some classes and then I happened to ask, I said, oh, so at what point am I going to have to take math? And the day that I found out I never had to take another math class was truly the best day of my life. I mean, quant methods is math, but it's, you know, it's, it's different. Calculus is what really killed my soul. I was able to like algebra is good, right? Calculus, my first ever C, first and only C. I'm watching my daughter as a junior take algebra two and I'm just 
impressed yeah <laughs> um that at such a young age she's able to even create a passable grade <laughs> uh, my best friend in high school went all the way to calc too and that that took him um <laughs> yeah, calc is what got me and it was funny because i didn't want to take ap calc um and both of my parents were adamant that i take it and then i mean i'm getting grades and i'm like oh, i'm getting my first c on my report card i'm so upset my mom and dad are both like oh yeah we got c's i'm like well then why are you making me take calculus if you didn't do good in it but then I ended up um getting injured really badly uh at my job and uh I couldn't take the AP test which was delightful because I was going to fail it so because my school only offered AP calc they didn't offer regular calc so I had to take AP calc um so they apparently they like called my name out on the day of the test and everyone's like she's not coming <laughs> just move on <laughs> um so Arizona State I was a pretty dedicated student um, I was really lucky to be there. Um, I was there at the time that, um, Christy Turner and mm. Chuck Murbs were kind of finishing their careers. So I had opportunities to take classes with them in kind of specialized topics in bioarchaeology, um, courses on violence in the Southwest, courses on skeletal trauma, um, forensic anthropology. Um, but I was also, um, took courses with Mary Marsky, who was nearing the end of her career. She was a Sherwood Washburn trained um, oh, functional anatomist. And I was very lucky to be in her fossil hominids class, which mm. to this day represents probably the best class I've ever taken. And for the Gen Z and millennial audiences, um, this class had no images. It was a faculty mm. member lecturing from note cards and memory and the capacity for her lectures to evoke such vivid images in the students who took this class was amazing because wow. despite not seeing the actual fossils, except in our labs, when we worked with Cass, um, I had an idea of what every single thing she was talking about looked like, um, how it moved around its environment. And, and to me, that's, that's suggestive of real talent. Yeah. Um, I also was really lucky to be mentored by Brenda Baker when I was there. Um, Brenda constantly pushed me to strive to be a better writer. Mm -hmm. um, she was very um, hard on my work when I first met her, which was intimidating. But the thing about Brenda and working with her is you realize that she is, you know, like Clark, who we'll talk about soon, mm -hmm. she's very, um, cares very much about her students producing the best possible results. And that kind of um, relationship that I had with her helped create the person that I am today in terms of the way that I advise students, but also more importantly, the way that I look inward to my own work and constantly like ask myself to do a better job. And as part of that also like developing a, a relation, cause you said she cared about the results you produced. Mm -hmm. Did she also care about you as a person? Cause I feel like you and Klaus really create that environment here at George Mason where like, I know that no matter what's going on, like the both of you care about like how I'm doing at home and like whether or not I get sleep and make it to school okay you know that kind of advisement and I think we'll talk about that when we talk about Clark as well mm -hmm. as you you know back in those times until you really got to know someone it was less apparent that they were concerned mm -hmm. about your, your mm -hmm. well-being I know Brenda really well now so I am sure yeah. she cared that I was healthy yeah and like showing up to class in a good uh composition you mm -hmm. know mental health but, um, you know, I think that in those days, 
the way and it, and it wasn't I, I don't think it was the fault of professors I think they were kind of glibly unaware um, mm -hmm. is that there was less understanding of okay better mental health means better results yeah um, but as I got to know each one and it took a while to get to know everyone all my mentors um, they showed definite like interest in my personal life yeah. and my family life um, you know um, now when I talk to Brenda, she's always asking about my daughter and about Brandy, my Miss Temple, my wife. Uh, so those, um, those relationships were forthcoming. They just took time. Yeah. But I think, you know, the way that we mentor now is that like, you know, kind of when you got off the plane, I wanted to make sure you yeah. were adjusting. Okay. Your whole cohort was adjusting. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that, you know, the life that you guys have is, uh, one where you can find time to produce excellent results. For sure. Yeah, and I think something that like I really respect is the first time the four of our it was so it was Camille because I don't think the other Jordan we have two Jordans in our cohort that are both Dr. Temple students so I think it was me Jordan Schaefer Sam and Camille in the room and we sat and we signed the contract and we discussed like here are the things that are not acceptable in this program not even for a second not even for an instant and then you also told us like here's my phone number if anyone's ever giving you a hard time call me and I will come scare them away and I feel like, you know, that's, it's like such a safe environment here that, you know, even if I'm having a grouchy day or whatever, I'm like, hey, at least like I'm literally so supported. And I know that, you know, if anything were to happen, like I have people that are even the cohort, you know, that are going to like take care of me, like our cohort, we get along so well, and we really take care of each other and help each other out when we can. So it's a beautiful thing. Very thankful. I, I'm really happy to hear that because I think that the environment that we strive to instill in our students is one where we are competitive and we do play hard, but that we create relationships with one another where we see the successes of each other as a success of a group. I agree um, with that, yeah. I, it, going to Ohio State, it was a really competitive atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that the level of competition was such when I was there, um, students weren't always happy with the successes of others. Mm -hmm. And it was because that conversation that you're talking about never happened. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I think I've also been really fortunate to have been friends with the women who were authors on the Safe 13 study. Mm -hmm. um, and that also influenced the way that I designed the contracts for my lab mentor mentees mm -hmm. um, to identify behaviors that are inappropriate, to talk about mechanisms for reporting and to establish myself and other faculty here as safe people to go to when, if something goes wrong. Mm -hmm. And also to establish a set of behaviors that are just straight up not tolerated in the lab and yeah. can result in dismissal. So mm -hmm. to me, when I hear you say that everybody's getting along, I feel, I feel really happy about it. And it's yeah. not just a testament to what, you know, Klaus, myself, Smith and Clark do, but also like other colleagues of mine whose work I've been able to kind of incorporate into mm -hmm. how I, um, how I put together our structures, our lab structure. Yeah. So that brings us to Ohio State. Did you do a master's before your PhD or straight to the PhD? I did my master's before my PhD. Okay. Where'd you do it? Bradford in England. Um, wow, I can't believe I didn't know that. Dang. <laughs> That's cool. Was it like a one-year program? Or? Yeah, it was okay. a one-year program. Um, so when I left Arizona State, I had this visualization of myself becoming a forensic anthropologist which is hilarious if you know me. Um, we all have that moment, I feel like. So I only applied to four universities okay. <laughs> for grad school, which is a dumb choice. Um, 
two of them were the among the most competitive to get into in the U.S. One was for forensics. One was Indianapolis, which is a small program that takes like two students a year. And the other was Tennessee. So I was promptly rejected by both of them and got into the two schools in England, the University of Durham and Mm. the University of Bradford. Um, I was super crushed. I was really disappointed. Um, But I also think when I consider it retrospectively that I did not have a good sense of myself when I wrote those applications. So that had I been a faculty member who read my application, I would have declined it. Um, Going to England helped me grow as a scholar and as a person. Um, I worked with Chris Canusel and was able to start moving my research interests into bioarchaeology at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, Chris was my mentor in Bradford and he was really phenomenal. He is probably one of the smartest human beings on the planet. He can talk to you about deep social and symbolic theory and mortuary practices and then switch at the drop of a hat and talk about the biomechanical aspects of diaphysial morphology. Um, Just a a brilliant person. Um, And he connected me with Don Ortner at the Smithsonian where I wrote my master's thesis on a little known fungal infection called coccidioidomycosis and its manifestation Mm. in human remains. Um, Kern County, California has it. it's endemic to low elevation desert. So you see a lot of it in Arizona. Um, And I worked at the Smithsonian that summer. Um, I was paired with Don Ortner and had a really phenomenal, man, that cohort was filled with brilliant thinkers and all-stars. Jamie Hodgkins was in that cohort, um, who's in Colorado, Kaylee Orr, who's also in Colorado. He's a functional, both are functional anatomists. Um, I think Jamie's a zoo archeologist now. Julia Fawn, who I think is now in the nonprofit sector, but she was rad. Um, so a lot of really great people that were there that, that yeah. year. And oh, Sarah Becker, who's at University of California, Riverside, was there. Mm. So we, we were, it was a really lively and fun group yeah. um, to work with. And of course, Don Ortner is like legendary for writing the paleopathology um, book, like the guide, the paleopathology book that currently Klaus is having us read in paleopathology, which I'm taking this semester. Um, So you mentioned earlier that a big part of what drew you in to the field was getting to ask the questions that you wanted to ask. So at this point in your career, kind of what are those questions that are on the forefront of your mind? Research-wise. Yeah, during your master's PhD time. So at that time, because of Don's influence, I was very interested in skeletal biology Mm -hmm. and the ways in which um, underlying disease alters the human skeleton and how we as bioarchaeologists can diagnose different conditions of disease or stress using the human skeleton. Um, At the time, I was a really um, hardcore proponent of the value of differential diagnosis Mm -hmm. Um, and its import in the practice of bioarchaeology so that we could understand what we were actually looking at in human skeletal remains mm-hmm. that we can make testable hypotheses about um, conditions that we encounter. Um, so that, that was the drive. It was very, you know, now I look back on that and it's like, that was very descriptive. And I think mm-hmm. Clark Larson at Ohio State would be like, Dan, that was very descriptive. <laughs> um, but 
that kind of training actually, I think for students at a master's level is great because it helps situate them in terms of what they're looking at yeah. in a skeleton. Um, yeah. And if you have, if you're even exposed to a little bit of Don's encyclopedic knowledge of the manifestation of disease in human remains, you come out a better bioarchaeologist. Um, so that was kind of at the forefront of my interests. And I was also, again, trying to find myself. So I was like, I want to study trauma. And there was a samurai cemetery in Japan that I thought was really uh, intriguing. It's called the uh, Zemokuza site, and it's in Kamakura City. It's from like 1333. And um, the number of human remains there was astonishing. It's something like 900 individuals with weapon trauma, metal weapon trauma, um, cranial trauma, saw trauma in the shins where people were getting hit with swords. Um, But this changed once I went to Ohio State. Yes, yes. So Ohio State, uh, you, I don't know if he was your only advisor, but I knew you were advised by Clark Spencer Larson. um, And that is also where you met Dr. Klaus. Mm -hmm. So I don't even know where to start. Um, Let's start with how you met Dr. Klaus. <laughs> yeah, all right. Dr. Um, Hagen Klaus, for anyone who doesn't know who we're speaking about, who is also a professor at George Mason, although I think everyone probably does. I think the first time I met Hagen was at, a, um, at the orientation for the department. Hagen will tell you that he met me at the GTA orientation, but I, don't, I didn't talk to him at that. I don't have any memory of interacting with him but he thought I looked like a jackass. So that's where he remembers seeing me. I remember him in the orientation because he kept asking questions and I just wanted to eat the cookies and pizza. Um, I very quickly got to know Hagen uh, over that time because we were in the same seminars. Um, we were, we had the same advisor um, and one of the great things about Ohio State at that time is that, you know, the students who were there worked together. Um, even though I, you know, described a hyper-competitive environment, when we were taking these classes, um, human variation with Doug Cruz was amazing, evolutionary theory with Paul Shuley. These are all classes that you're pulling your hair out while you're taking. Is and, that a evolutionary theory one, the one you were telling me about the book down there? Oh, yeah, yeah, that the, book. the many books. The Stephen Jay Gould. <laughs> the Stephen Jay Gould, the Fatuma, <clears throat> the facsimile of Origin of Species. Um, these courses were hard. And um, what was great about it is we would work together as students. We'd go to someone's house and we would literally sit around for two hours talking about how we were approaching questions on exams, how we were dealing with issues on essays. I remember one year it, we did this and I didn't have furniture yet in my house. So everyone sat around my bed so they could put their, their notebooks down and yeah. write. Um, so I was like, I don't, that's all I have is a bed. <laughs> yeah. um, and there was like 10 of us up there just, you know, engaging in these really, um, really deep discussions. About there were 10 we people were in your PhD cohort? Uh, there were 13 total for the department. Oh, for the department. Okay. And, yeah, but it, like your cohort, we're all in these courses together. Yes, I got four it. courses. So. Yeah, every PhD program is kind of different. So like I'm used to at UCSD, like the, the, everything's very separate, but it sounds like that was more like a, a general cohort. So did Clark have any other students aside from you and Hagen? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. He, so I think um, 
within that two to three year time frame, he trained probably some of his best students. Um, you know, that cohort included myself, Hagen, Jamie Ullinger, um, the year before Tracy Betzinger, um, Leslie Gregorica, Marin Palud. Um, you know, these people are now, uh, these colleagues are now um, at really strong universities and yeah. all of them are doing work that has substantial impact. Yeah. So um, to me, when I look back on those years, um, I feel a lot of gratitude because not only did I get to study with fantastic faculty, but all of the people who I was, you know, involved in these cohorts with um, went on to do really great stuff and, and they still continue to. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, that's awesome. Um, and so what is something that was either like a long lasting or immediate influence, like something you took from Clark Spencer Larson that either stays with you today or influenced your early years of teaching slash research? So the thing that I think that Clark does the best is project building. And Clark, um, throughout his career, whether we're talking about his work in the Georgia Bight or we're talking about the teams he's put together to work in uh, Chatalhuyuk in Turkey, um, is put together teams of extraordinary expertise um, that address bioarchaeology from kind of a um, integrated standpoint. Uh, all of his projects have experts in biomechanics and diet and biodistance, um, again, stress and disease um, and mortuary practices. You know, there's a strong archeological component to the excavations that are associated with his work. Um, so in that respect, I like to think <laughs> that um, kind of the research program I established in Japan um, and the work I'm involved in with hunter-gatherers in Northern Eurasia, mm -hmm. as well as the Alaskan Arctic, I'd like to think that the capacity to build was imparted uh, by Clark to me or from Clark to me. Yeah. And do you have any funny memories you'd like to share of your time during your PhD, either with Klaus or uh, Clark? Yeah. Podcast appropriate. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're they're both really people who behave with integrity. So yeah. um, most of what I'll say about them is appropriate. Clark correcting me one time when I gave him a draft of an article that was published in AJ, AJBA. Um, he read the article and sat me down in his office. We'd always sit us down and we'd have like a conversation about what we wrote. Um, and there was a part of the article that he didn't like and he had it circled and you could tell, I could see his mind working as the gears were turning. He wanted to tell me how to fix it. And he was like, so this section, he looked at me and went, no, no, no. Thought about explaining, explaining to me why the section didn't work. Realized it was a waste of his time because it, what I had written was so dumb. And then he went, just no, no, no. <laughs> And I, I, to this day, found that to be one of the funniest yeah. things he's ever said. He also would ask me, <laughs> he would also ask me sometimes if I've ever read the American Journal of, at the time, Physical Anthropology. And I would say yes. And then he would ask me if I knew he was the editor <laughs> when he was giving me feedback to make sure that his, um, that his, uh, 
his experience was established yeah <laughs> and it was it was done in good humor and it was always really funny <laughs> nice so what did you end up writing your phd dissertation on uh, um my doctoral dissertation was a large study of in God forgive me for this because I think it's the most boring thing I've ever written. Um, it was a study of the consequences of the agricultural transition in prehistoric Japan. The Jomon and Yayoi? Jomon and Yayoi transition. Yeah. Um, at the time I wrote it, um, I was looking to put together a comprehensive understanding of the human experience during, during agriculture in that region because so little had been done. Mm -hmm. um, the primary kind of impetus in Japanese bioarchaeology at the time was population origins. Mm -hmm. um, graduate students who were active at the same time as me, uh, Kenji Okazaki, um, Soichiro Mizushima, and Aiko Sasso all started writing on more kind of processualist mm -hmm. and post-processualist questions about growth and development, mm -hmm. mortuary practice, um, biomechanics, biodistance, you know, intra-cemetery variation questions. Um, at the time we were um, all graduate students, um, the older generation had mostly published on population origins. Mm -hmm. So our goal was to kind of, all of us independently, to put yeah. together an understanding of the ecological settings for the agricultural transition and kind of the impact of lived experience during it. Because yeah. When you look at this shift in Japan, and we'll, I think we're gonna talk more about this with hunter-gatherers, we're not just talking about a change in the way people eat, but we're talking about changes in the way people relate to environments. So agricultural, agricultural transitions represent not just a shift in ecology, diet and economics, but also changes in ideology. Mm -hmm. And what I wanted to know was, um, what were the consequences of those changes for the, the stress experience using stress yeah. indicators and the stress experiences of people who lived through it? Um, and at this point, has the osteological paradox been published? Oh, yeah, that was published okay. in 92. Okay, 92. I couldn't remember if it was early 2000s or early 90s. Um, because obviously that has a huge impact on the field and the directions that people and the way people are thinking about specifically like stress and like you were saying, like population dynamics. Um so we've talked a lot about Japan. When was your first time going there? Yeah, my first time was in June of 2003. I applied for and received a small like dissertation, a pre-dissertation research fellowship from Ohio State. And it gave me two months in the field where I went to the University of Kyoto to work. Um, I worked with the curator and director of the I think it's a zoology lab there, um, Masato Nakatsukasa. And um, he was kind of my guide to living in Japan as well as doing research in Japan. Mm -hmm. He's a really brilliant primate functional morphologist. He's one of the members of the team that discovered Nachalpithecus in oh. Kenya, um, which is a candidate ancestor for chimpanzees. Mm -hmm. um, and he has, is a human being. And again, like when you, encounter people throughout your career, like the humanness of individuals, the humaneness really mm -hmm. like leaves an impression. Yeah. And Masato is one of those people whose humaneness um, 
definitely left a really strong impression with me. He's, he's yeah. a very kind person and he, um, you know, it's belied by this incredible brilliance that he has as a functional anatomist. And he would always ask me questions about my bioarchaeological research. Like we'd, we'd go out to have a few drinks. Um, shochu in Japan is a very lovely beverage. Um, and he would ask me these really pointed questions. And frequently I was like, damn, dude, I got to go home and think about this. Um, I can't just answer here at the bar. Yeah. Um, so that, that was kind of my first experience. And it, it was I'd wake up at about 7.30 every day, work in the lab till five, and then go back to my apartment. It, it can be isolating, but it was, um, it was, it was really positive overall. Yeah. Um, yeah, my experience in Japan was incredible. I think about it all the time. It just, the people there are so special. Like one of my favorite stories is that, so I was on an exchange program and um, we, so we had, you know, someone who was kind of like our, our guide and our like coordinator, you know, made sure we got to the hotel, made sure we had rooms at the hotel, whatever. And, but there was probably 13, 14 of us. And one day somehow we got a little bit lost on the, whatever they call their Metro subway sort of um, line. And someone just sitting next to us could tell that we were lost and literally helped us find our way so come we didn't even ask her she just heard that we were lost took us to the zoo showed us around we were like we're good now thank you so much she was like no i know i know i'm going to show you the whole all of tokyo just like the kindness of people there but also i wrote for the um for our theory class with dr morris i wrote a paper on gift giving comparing it to the mousy gift in japan and really you know was kind of reflecting on certain experiences with gift giving in japan and as, as altruistic and as great as it is, it also does become a burden to them, like the degree to which they have to gift. And I was talking to my dear family friends, they're basically like my grandparents, um, who set up the exchange program that I went on to Japan. So they've been there multiple times. And I was telling them that and they were like, yeah, no, I really agree. Like as amazing as it is, especially like workers, like they'll bring back gifts for everyone in the office, you know, like they'll spend a day of their vacation trying to find the perfect gift for everyone in their office, you know, like it's a full, a full like job to be a, a proper gift giver the way Japanese society like wants you to be. Yes. Yeah. And um, one of the things that I worked on while I was there was to make sure that my behavior wasn't creating a burden for the people who I worked with. Because the second time I went back, I actually did that at a museum and felt terrible. Um, it was pointed out to me later, and it was one of it was, it was a moment, you know, mm -hmm. that one of these moments where, as an anthropologist, um, and you're working with collections that aren't yours, the collections are, are, are local collections that are maintained by experts and scholars in that mm -hmm. institution. And I later realized that, you know, I had made requests that probably was a burden on their time. Hmm. And um, it didn't feel good. I had yeah. to reevaluate um, the way that I interacted there. But, you know, to me, you know, it's, it's a really important learning experience as we um, interact with different spheres of culture mm -hmm. in our, in our travels. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and you, you do a lot of that even like now. So finish your PhD. What year is that? 2007. 
And what year do you get hired at GMU? Well, I was at the University of Missouri for two years. Two years. Um, so the move to Mason for me was great. It's, it's been a, um, a really positive experience, actually. And the only thing I miss from UNC, the main thing I miss, though, is, is still that sense of community. But I, I have it here. It's just different. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think part of that, too, is probably just kind of like the sprawl that is this other side of the river from D.C. Like, I'll get in the car and anything feels like a 30-minute drive. Everything you know? is a 30-minute drive. Everything is a 30-minute drive. So <laughs> it's, but it's, the nice thing is, is that it's, you know, I came from like Southern California, very urban, like I would take the 101 to and from like the grocery store, you know? So it's different here and that it's a lot more of like the side roads and it'll be like an eight mile drive that takes you 30 minutes. So it's not like horrible, but it's, it is just more like work, you know, to get to everyone. And especially like Fairfax County, isn't it like one of the richest counties in Virginia? So people kind of live on like the outskirts, I feel like. Oh yeah. No, um, Fairfax County, Alexandria, mm-hmm. uh, Alexandria City and Arlington County are some of the wealthiest in mm-hmm. Virginia. And in fact, I, you know, politically, I argue there's two states. Mm-hmm. We live in one and then the rest of Virginia is the other. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, we've driven a lot of, been drivers of a lot of the kind of liberal innovation that's gone on um, Mm -hmm. in the state um, in terms of our electoral politics. Um, But at the same time, you know, the Chesapeake region's super cool, Richmond, really fun. And I have gotten to visit Shenandoah Valley, and I think that's Mm -hmm. a really lovely place as well. for sure. Their softball teams are absolute ass kickers. Those girls can hit. Yeah. Yeah. And on that note, uh, Dr. Temple coaches his uh, daughter's uh, travel softball team. I do. I coach an 18U travel softball team for my daughter, which is super fun. Uh, yeah. It's all set. She's, she's a good player and we have a lot of fun traveling around playing mm-hmm. softball. Yeah. Um, so let's kind of dive into the research that you've done since you've been here and uh, like the directions that you want to go in the future. Sure. Um, so you focus on hunter gatherers and resilience and early life stress. <laughs> yes. Talk to me about specifically the questions that you're interested in asking and like what populations you're currently like working with. Yeah. So um, the work with hunter gatherers is really uh, multi-layered. Um, we're interested in firstly the ways in which anthropology has kind of conceived of Mm -hmm. hunter-gatherers because the idea of hunter-gatherers comes from a colonial impression of binary lifestyles, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It has this kind of origin in a destitute, lazy, wealthy, active kind of conceptualization. Populations with higher degrees of social organization are, are more wealthy. Those with less are have um, less wealth and it's problematic. And Mm -hmm. it has reverberated into the ways that we have treated hunter-gatherers throughout anthropological history. Um, Even the romantic movement who, you know, saw the return to nature as a net positive for escaping the destructive materialism that we kind of inhabit. And I, I I love that concept, but it also, creates a situation in which we're looking at hunter-gatherers as others Mm -hmm. or as stepping stones Mm -hmm. in this kind of ladder towards a western capitalist uh, economic system and the reality and the way that we the way that i feel like resilience plays such an important role here 
is that hunter-gatherers may have acted as a starting point in terms of the cultural evolutionary history for, for capitalism or for even agriculturalists or agro-pastoralists, but hunter-gatherers also create and maintain sustainable economic and ideological systems, and they exist oftentimes at the, you know, geographic boundaries of, um, of agricultural and state level societies and refuse to engage in their systems. Mm -hmm. um, so to me, um, when we think about hunter gatherers, I think it's important that we divorce them from this kind of ladder-esque um, characterization and instead understand who they are yeah. as more of a um, kind of constantly evolving group that is creating and maintaining sustainable lifestyles. Yeah. Um, and to me, that is associated with, and that's where resilience theory can become so helpful mm -hmm. um, because it establishes the idea of knowledge, the transmissions of information over time, and specifically the ways in which uh, flexible socioecological systems can promote sustainability. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite examples of this is actually in the Pacific Northwest coast um, That's right. <laughs> yeah, the um, the use of salmon, um, the use of salmon in those populations is um, studied by archaeologists who were able to see that salmon consumption changes over the seven thousand year period, but that you know the use of salmon is relatively constant; it's always there, and during periods where access to salmon is challenged, right, through mm -hmm. different kind of ecological changes. Salmon still maintains itself as a part of the ideological system. Mm -hmm. And there are actual prescriptions on the capacity for populations to go out and hunt salmon so that the resource itself can be maintained, right? So yeah. um, when I think about hunter-gatherers and resilience, to me, that's one of the coolest examples. It's by uh, Butler and Campbell. It was published in, I think, 2010. Um, and really shows the ways in which the hunter-gatherer socio-ecological system is interacting with ideology. Mm -hmm. So it's not just simply like when we talk about what hunter-gatherers are, um, we're not talking about people who just simply hunt, yeah. right? Um, we're talking about people who engage their landscape in, in very specific ways. Mm -hmm. um, to me, um, Tim Ingold is actually one of the um, premier theorists when we study hunter-gatherers because he talks about how this process is associated with reciprocal relationships with nature, right? Where it's differentiated from agriculture because agriculture focuses on ideologies of care and dominion, um, whereas hunter-gatherers are more interested in establishing this kind of reciprocal relationship with the, with the world, which means the animal has the capacity to give back. Um, and that the behaviors of humans are going to be um, primary determinants on what is given back or if anything is given back at all. Mm -hmm. um, in this sense, then, you know, we establish the conceptualization here as both ecology, ideology, and the interaction of the two. And research-wise, or at least theoretically, that's where I like to kind of see myself as departing from when I'm studying it. Yeah. And so a lot of the work that you do presently involves Japanese populations. You still work with the Jomon and the Yayoi, which are uh, prehistoric hunter-gatherers in Japan. 
that we were discussing earlier, as well as, you know, have like contacts in Russia, Siberia area where you do work and Alaska, the Aleutian Islands. Is that present or was that, I just know from quant methods. Oh, it's all, this it's is all, all ongoing research, okay. yeah. Yeah, so what are you looking at in uh, the Aleutians Islands area? So in Alaska, um, I had a student, uh, Emily Rosa, who did this fantastic thesis on biomechanics in those areas. Um, she collected CT scans from several hundred individuals that were still available for study from the Bering Sea region, um, from the Point Hope region, um, from Point Barrow. So all these different kind of eco ecological zones of Alaska to unravel um, habitual behavior in the um, lifestyles of these populations. Um, and the skeleton really is an amazing um, structure that tells us if we look carefully and ask the right questions, what we did during our lifetime, right? It provides us with an understanding of our experiences across the lifespan. And in this way, the skeleton is almost like living memory after mm -hmm. death, right? Where it can provide us with an understanding of um, habitual activity, of early life stress, really just about any question we want to ask about the past and about behavior can be um, found in a skeleton. Um, and in this region, um, one of the things that we are interested in is how people are moving around their environment. Um, archaeologists have enumerated tools, they have enumerated zooarchaeological remains, and a series of assumptions about what people did to amass these items is uh, published in archaeological research. And what we're interested in is either validating these points or trying to understand areas where there is greater nuance. Mm -hmm. um, we can see, for example, evidence of asymmetry in the strength of the upper limb when we look at questions of um, unilateral projectile use. And we have been able to validate a number of archaeological hypotheses regarding the use of throwing as a primary way of hunting. And we see this, we see this in um, the Aleutian Islands, um, where there's high degrees, or at least relatively high degrees of asymmetry in the strength of the upper limb that is associated with the use of harpoons and dartboards. Um, atlatls? Yes, atlatls. Yeah, they use the, a lot of the archaeological studies use the word dartboard, but yes, yeah. atlatl is. We just had area. someone on the podcast who talked about atlatls, so I want to kind of like connect the dots for the <laughs> listeners. Yeah, it, it, the, the word is pretty much interchangeable. Yeah. And this is for populations who are hunting seal on the open ocean, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then when we look at groups who were engaged in more bimanual activity um, in the Kuskokwim River Delta regions, for example. So is that closer to Alaska? It's in Alaska. Okay. Yeah, it's on the Alaskan mainland, okay. sorry. Um, that these populations were in fact engaged in ensnarement hunting. And um, in addition to ensnarement hunting, they're also using bow and arrows. Mm -hmm. um, so you see a more bilaterally symmetric strength of mm -hmm. um, the upper limb in these groups. Um, one of the bigger questions though, we've kind of started to unravel is related to the sexual division of labor in these populations. Mm -hmm. um, think um, going back to Elizabeth Weiss's work in this area, she kind of established this narrative that said, you know, 
male upper limbs are stronger and female upper limbs are weaker. And therefore males are using watercraft, females mm -hmm. are not. Um, and we kind of question that. Uh, and the reason we question that is in you know, Weiss's own data set, what we see is that females from the Aleutian Islands have upper limbs that are as strong as open ocean rowing males from the Pacific Northwest coast. Um, so we did a little bit of a deeper dive into what females were doing in these areas in terms of their activity by looking at the shape mm -hmm. of the cross section. And what we found when we studied the shape of the cross section is this um, remarkably circular shape. And experimentally speaking, the muscles that are activated during rowing are going to be muscles of the forearm, particularly when it's these um, singular paddles. Mm -hmm. um, and it is eliciting this greater circularity. And um, in radii, radii and ul ulnae? No, in female humeral shape. You just said the forearm. Upper, oh, the muscles are from the forearm. Forearm, but they're, but they're attaching, attaching to the, the humeral. Yes, 100%. Um, so for us, this change in shape is really interesting because what we see is a population that had been kind of, their activity has been erased by yeah. kind of these colonial enterprises in anthropology. And as we um, put together the shape of the humeri, we asked ourselves, well, what are they doing on the open ocean? Mm -hmm. And here, you know, trusting what indigenous people are telling us about how they're interacting with their environment is important because what we know about these groups is that individuals that identify as males are involved in kayak hunting. Mm -hmm. And this is a religious prescription in these populations um, in the Aleutian Islands, but there are also larger watercraft called nishiloks. And these watercrafts are open to anyone to use. Mm -hmm. And what we think is happening is that we can't kind of consolidate the um, seafaring behaviors to these singular kinds mm -hmm. of um, crafts. And instead what we're looking at is female participation in the socio-ecological system in Nishilaks, mm -hmm. that they're open, they're rowing on the open ocean. And we also believe that it's likely that individuals who may be phenotypically thought to be female, like mm -hmm. looking at a skeleton, could have gender roles that allow them to be identified as male and are in fact engaging in kayak hunting. Mm -hmm. And do you see any correlation between this open water rowing and the coastal migration hypothesis? Because we are talking about islands and land, land areas that are within that migration hypothesis. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And when we talk about the coastal migration hypothesis, it's an event that happened thousands of years before the remains that we're studying. Yeah. But one of it's the still, things- But in my mind, I still see it as the same populations. Okay, so one of the things I'll say about, about this idea mm -hmm. is that human populations have used watercraft for probably at least 40,000 years, and the capacity to navigate these territories mm -hmm. is certainly likely yeah. in, in that hypothesis. I believe in Australia, they have it at 60,000 60, wow, okay. Getting so from back Southeast year. Asia to Australia. That's awesome, yeah. and that's exactly the kind of thing that shows us that yeah humans were definitely like much more mobile than we mm -hmm. kind of conceive of them yeah. being at these early points and sure. what it does is kind of complicate the story yeah. of how people get around so i i know less about kind of the population history of the new world mm -hmm. at least 
not enough to comment on it in a podcast but what yeah. i would say is that when when we are aware of the kinds of technologies and the ways that people are moving around and we see that it opens up a lot of possibilities for for how indigenous groups inhabited um the continent definitely last semester made a trip to latvia um why were you there i am uh really lucky to be on one of like what i think is the coolest current like bioarchaeological research projects which is the uh, Baikal archaeology project and the Baikal archaeology project is one that is um, focused on high resolution producing high resolution life histories of populations who lived in northern Eurasia between about 8,000 years ago and about 4,000 years ago um, the, the project is focused on hunter-gatherers, mm -hmm. and it is associated directly with um, radiocarbon dating of all individuals that are included in the study. And it has experts from various um, aspects of bioarchaeology and archaeology, as well as ethno-history and ethnographic research all kind of coming together to answer questions about how humans dealt with changing climates mm -hmm. um, during the Holocene. Um, right now, the materials we're working with in Latvia are from a site called Shveniaki, and it is dated between about 8,000 years ago, and if it goes all the way through the medieval period. It is a long-term um, occupational site. Um, but the materials we're focused on are kind of the early Neolithic and the Mesolithic materials, the hunter-gatherers from the site. And my role in the project is to collect samples of teeth to produce microstructural um, images that allow us to see how old individuals were when they experienced growth disturbances and kind of tie those to um, environmental reconstructions that we're doing using isotopes um, adult diet, childhood feeding behavior, infant feeding behavior, um, mm -hmm. to get a, get a better grasp on the socio and environmental contributors to stress at this time. Um, also involved in collecting CT scans. So we are gonna have a kind of a biomechanical reconstruction of these groups and their um, capacity to move around the environment. Mm -hmm. um, the project though, I mean, in general has a number of really amazing professionals in bioarchaeology. It's run by Andre Weber from the University of Alberta, but Angela Levers and Rick Schulting are also on the project. Angela is a brilliant skeletal biologist and she's deeply involved in producing both dietary estimations of these groups as well as uh, paleopathological analysis. And Rick is involved in the radiocarbon dating um, as well as taking incremental sections of um, Denton to put together dietary reconstructions of the feeding environment early in life. So our hope, I think the hope is for the project, and there are like 30 people on this project, um, our hope is to put together a really large narrative of what life and lifestyle is about during mm -hmm. these time periods. The challenge we've run into is that Russia has um, yeah. become inaccessible. Yes. Um which is a whole conversation with in and of itself that we won't touch on today. Um, so you mentioned something that is a really interesting aspect of uh, bioarchaeology theory, specifically recently, which is the life history approach. Mm -hmm. Could you expand on that? Because I don't think that's anything I've ever talked about on the podcast before, just like generally the goals of a life history approach. 
So as I was um, talking about earlier, to me at least, a human skeleton is a record keeper of our lives. And a human skeleton, especially when combined with a mortuary record, becomes a powerful agent of memory. And within this agency of memory, not only can we put together kind of this um, understanding of what I want to call kind of a singular perspective of an individual, mm -hmm. but we can put together a multi-dimensional perspective of an individual's life experience because different aspects of our skeleton are capturing events that occur throughout our lifetime. And when we have the capacity to estimate when these events are happening, we can also then explore the um, relationships that they have with factors such as mortality, uh, chronic diseases, um, and in this sense, create a, you know, an idea of a skeleton as a multi-dimensional record keeper of life experience, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to just looking at the um, lesions that we see in a singular vacuum. Uh, so the life history perspective for me is about this concept of memory, and it's about using the human skeleton to understand how events in the early life of an individual may relate to hazards at other ages. Mm -hmm. And these hazards can be things like disruptions in growth of body size. It could be chronic infectious disease. It could be um, early mortality. Um, and these relationships are, you know, they're powerful indicators of, you know, what you asked about, which is life history, which mm -hmm. is the capacity for our bodies to differentially invest in factors such as maintenance, growth, reproduction, during periods of stress. I think um, it's very valuable to view the skeleton like that and something that it's, it's kind of related, which is um, in Dr. Klaus's Sacrifice and Violence class, we read Carolina Delacova's piece about how even just more generally referring uh, to uh, remains as people rather than a specimen or um, there was another word that she used like as a, just like as a collection as a in reminding ourselves that these were individuals these are people who lived lives and um, just generally like imbuing that uh, the humanity back into bioarchaeology rather than just looking at things as like numbers and I find that like connected to the life history approach do you want the tough question now yeah. Okay. Uh, what do you see as essential factors or um, areas of research that will be essential to progressing the field of bioarchaeology in like, let's say the next 10 years? That is a great question. And my initial response is, I don't know. Um, but you gave me an opportunity to think about it before our meeting, so thank you. <laughs> yeah. um, a few areas that I think are, are important. Um, if a person is currently working with human remains, um, there is a social responsibility now to create communities of interaction with descendants. Mm -hmm. And this social responsibility, I think, is becoming more pressing as we work with um, and hear about and confront the colonial past of anthropology. Mm -hmm. So our capacity to build these communities becomes important. It is something that my work has not yet done. 
and it is something that my work endeavors to do because um, I feel like as a, as a um, bioarchaeologist, there is a um, form of responsible stewardship involved in the, in the work that I'm engaging with. It is part of a building program and learning process for myself. But I also know that there are bioarchaeologists out there who were trained um, at later stages than I was who have these programs off the ground and running. Mm -hmm. And I find those programs to be uh, immensely instructive. And my hope is that myself and other bioarchaeologists will have the opportunity to learn from those programs over the coming years. Um, because in establishing these uh, communities of communication, I'll call them, um, I feel like our research can only be stronger. Yeah, um, I agree with that. Other aspects of that question, I think, may be more research-oriented. Um, mm -hmm. I think that the research that's being done in bioarchaeology has to interact to a greater extent with both theory and quantitative models. Mm -hmm. And I know that sounds funny to say, but I am a person who subscribes to both a strong belief that the ideology, ideology and agency are major drivers of populations, but that oftentimes when we're exploring biological questions, that the capacity to put together models that truly test the hypothesis of questions that we have is paramount. Mm -hmm. um, and this begins with skeletal biology um, using a detailed knowledge of the ways in which our life experiences manifest in our teeth and in our bones, mm -hmm. um, our methods, using methods that are appropriate indicators of these manifestations, and in the theory building in terms of understanding not only the questions that we're asking, but the motivating factors and historical precedent behind those questions. And I hope I was able to impart that in my talk about, you know, in my discussion here about how I approach hunter-gatherers, mm -hmm. because there's always a historical component to the work that we're engaging with. And that historical component needs to be interrogated mm -hmm. in order for our questions to have greater resonance and greater transformative value. I think everything you just said is very important. And I definitely think that you did convey that in, in your earlier discussion. Um, I think one of the most important things in all aspects of anthropology in the next 10, 20 years is more public facing uh, out, outlets, um, outreach. And naturally, you know, that's part of the reason I started the podcast. Uh, but I also do it in other respects. You know, I like to, uh, for example, for Anthro Day, which is coming up, I think this episode will probably come out before Anthro Day. Yeah. Um, World Anthro Day is the 16th. I'm going to be lecturing at, uh, lecturing three, two different classrooms within the same school and then a high school. So two elementary school classes and then a high school class about anthropology and the value of it. Um, because personally, I think that sometimes as a field we're too insular insul insular and we need to get past this whole like a publication is the only product that we're putting out and it's behind a paywall and it has so much scientific jargon that the public can't even understand it or a percentage of the public and for me that's where I see the the need for change going forward and I've been really like 
thankful that that's something that in various classes like we have brought up and discussed but at the same time I think a lot of people are committed to it in theory and not in actuality. Oh, so you were talking to someone with no social media presence? Well social media <laughs> is not the only way to do no, it. I, I know that's kind of my segue to comment on this really important point. Um, I have spent my career as an introvert mm -hmm. um, so I do less of that, not because I don't believe in its value, but because I, um, I tend to question the value of the things that I say and mm -hmm. whether or not anyone really wants to hear them. But I, what I've noticed with um, younger generations is this really tremendous capacity to want to speak to so many audiences in so many different formats. And as an advisor, I would say that you should go for it. Um, you may not see it for me because of my personality, um, but... This podcast I actually see as a really cool opportunity to talk to more people and to um, have a chance to engage in more meaningful conversations. So um, I really appreciate the chance to do this. This is, this, this is the first time I've actually engaged with a public facing forum as a professional anthropologist. I think it's important. I hope we do more of it because it doesn't always have to be in I think the way that, for example, it's not always about talking about what, how we need to change. You know, sometimes it's just talking about like how anthropology has changed and like explaining to younger generations, but also like people in other parts of the world. That's awesome. And I think those are, you know, um, for me, the importance here of what you're talking about too, is that the way we, um, perform education as a society begins at such young ages. Mm -hmm. And um, in talking to neighborhood friends who are teachers, um, anthropology really, in, God, in my own high school, but I, I think that'd be really like a impossible request. Um, <laughs> anthropology is really a um, something that is absent from the curriculum mm -hmm. that we learn as very young people even though it is essential mm -hmm. to the dialogues that we have as adults. Mm -hmm. um, and I will tell you, quite honestly, one of the most feared things I ever hear at parties is, I heard you were an anthropologist and I have some questions. Uh, because usually I end up talking about aliens and uh, Atlantis and um, yes. things of that nature, but the, you know, creating these dialogues at younger ages to me is is really a um a valuable source and i you know the way that we're establishing education in high schools and junior high schools anthropology is there you know yeah. i read my daughter's assignments and she tells me oh we're doing this in sociology and i said that's anthropology mm -hmm. and we're doing this in history and i said that's archaeology um and we did this in uh biology and i said it's biological anthropology mm -hmm. um so establishing a way in which we train teachers, for example, mm -hmm. um, to go into these fields, and, and I'm saying this as a department chair, um, is something that I think I'll be looking into during my time, because I, yeah. I really feel that there's value in placing more people who are credentialed to teach mm -hmm. um, in social sciences, particularly anthropology, mm -hmm. into these positions so that at younger ages, individuals have opportunities to interact with it. Definitely.
definitely. And I think that that's kind of a good note to like wrap things up on. Um, what I do at the end of podcast episodes, like to offer the opportunity, if you have any questions for me or anything that you want to talk about, um, you, that you're welcome to, but you talk to me all the time. But if there's anything I said that like sparked something. Um, I'd like to thank you for giving me this opportunity. Yeah. Um, and thank your listeners. This is the first time I have, um, engaged with the public audience so please be kind to me yes um, they will be. and if anyone is interested in interacting with us about our graduate program at george mason um please feel free to shoot me an email um i am available but you know thank you again to um gabriella for this opportunity and it's really great to see the work that she's doing being broadcast to larger audiences um, in service of the goals that she has for her uh, role as an anthropologist. Thank you.